You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sorry about the little bit of delay, a couple of minutes. They were trying to. Um, there are some folks who watched the class online and they were trying to uh, make sure that it was broadcasting and they were just trying to set that all up. Tayyib, inshaAllah. Um, in the previous session, we talked about the migration of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum to Abyssinia, Eastern Africa, Habasha in Arabic. And we talked about the two waves of migration. Uh, what we talked about initially was when did migration actually occur? So we discussed this was something that was occurring during the fourth year of the prophethood of the Nubuwa. And we talked about how when the opposition to Islam and the Muslims in Mecca reached a certain peak and it reached a certain point, that at that point in time the Prophet of Allah personally had a certain level of protection provided by Abu Talib, his uncle and the family relations. So he had certain family connections that kept him protected. There were a few other individuals who weren't completely protected like Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and a few others. Even they were not completely protected. Even Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu uh, was permanently injured and was beaten into a coma. But nevertheless, generally speaking, day to day, they did not live under constant oppression. They weren't. They didn't have to go into hiding, begin living underground. Whereas a lot of the Sahaba radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with them, began living literally underground. They 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 were under house arrest. They could not leave their homes because the second they would be spotted in the streets, they would be grabbed and they would be tortured near death or even to death. And so at this point in time, there are over a hundred Muslims in Mecca, but unfortunately the majority of them are living under this constant um, grip of oppression and violence. At that point in time, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ had been kind of keeping an open eye and an open mind to other areas outside of Mecca to see if there was any place that would be hospitable, that would be welcoming and protecting um, towards this small little group of Muslims where they could go and they could seek refuge. And the Prophet ﷺ became aware of Habasha, Abyssinia, Eastern Africa, what we today would call Ethiopia. And the Prophet of Allah when he became aware of this place, he even spoke about this in some narrations. He said, فَإِنَّ هُنَاكَ مَلَكٌ مَلِكٌ Excuse me, فَإِنَّ هُنَاكَ مَلِكٌ The Prophet of Allah said, because there is a king over there who offers protection, who is very fair, he is very just. لَا يَظْلِمُ أَحَدًا He does not oppress anyone, he does not do wrong to anyone. He welcomes minorities, he welcomes all types of people from all walks of life and grants them protection. So the Prophet of Allah sent a group of Sahaba radiallahu anhum. The leaders of this group were none other than Uthman bin Affan radiallahu anhu and his wife Ruqayya bin to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the second daughter of the Prophet sallallahu whose name was Ruqayya. So the daughter and the son-in-law of the Prophet ﷺ were at the head of this group and it said that there were a total of 15 or 16 people, different narrations, who went in this first group of um, immigrants 
people leaving Makkah to go and seek sanctuary, refuge in Habasha in Eastern Africa. And we talked a little bit about how the Prophet ﷺ found out that they were okay, they were safe and sound. And they arrived in Mecca, safe and sound, and they, the Prophet ﷺ instructed them to keep a very low profile, live a little bit outside of a major city, not attract a lot of attention to yourselves, and just kind of mind your own business. And subhanAllah, the people of this region were also welcoming and open-minded enough to where they obviously realized these are outsiders, these are foreigners, there's something different about these people, but they didn't make a big deal a lot of these people arriving either and they kind of let them be and do their own thing. Well, we talked about literally two months after these Muslims had arrived in Abyssinia, a major incident during the month of Ramadan took place in Mecca. And we talked about this at length last time where the Prophet ﷺ recited Surah Tunajam, the entire surah within, or, or the majority of the surah, excuse me, in the haram. And at the conclusion of the surah, فَاسْجُدُوا لِلَّهِ وَعْبُدُوا So fall down before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone and worship Him alone. And how the Prophet ﷺ, when he went into sujood, naturally, because of listening to the message of the surah and being so affected and impacted by it, all the people who were present there also fell into sujood before Allah. And everyone fell into prostration and sujood. It's said in some narrations that even people like Abu Jahl fell into sujood. Um, uh, Ut, uh, Rabi, uh, Utbah bin uh, Rabi'ah, uh, Rabi excuse me, or uh, Walid bin Mughira, one of the two, I forget exactly who I mentioned this in the previous session, who had confronted the Prophet ﷺ, was too arrogant to go into sujood. So the narration says he picked up a little bit of dirt and placed it on his forehead. But the gist of it is that everyone was deeply affected by this. And later on, a couple of days later, they had kind of a press release or a press conference to kind of put everyone's concerns to rest and saying that, oh, this was Muhammad's magic and he affected everyone. But don't worry, everything's okay. Everyone's back to normal. We're all okay. But the news of this, by the time it reached Habasha, because you know how rumors work and news works, by the time it exchanges, you know, four or five hands, it's become completely different. So by the time the news reached the Muslims in Habasha, the news was, all of Quraysh, all of Mecca has accepted Islam. And so the majority of these people who had gone to Abyssinia, the majority of them came back to Mecca. And this was during the month of Shawwal. So this is probably, probably about three months, four months after they had made the trip out to Abyssinia. Four months later, they're coming back home to Mecca. It said when they were probably about a few miles, literally half a day's journey outside of Mecca, and they camped out there, they met some people from there, and when they talked to them, when they spoke to them, they found out that the news you've received is false. The majority of Mecca is still against Islam, and in fact their opposition to the Muslims has increased, has intensified. So it said that about four people came back into Mecca, the majority of them head back to Abyssinia. But these four people who came back to Mecca, Uthman bin Maz'un and a few others who are mentioned by name, when they came back into Mecca, now they had first-hand information of what life in Abyssinia was like. And what they ended up realizing was life in Abyssinia was very safe, it was very welcoming, it was comfortable. So it said, but at the same time, if you remember when we talked about the first migration, that the Meccans did try to follow them. They found out a little bit late, they tried to get after them and catch them, but by the time they reached the port, the Muslims had already departed. 
So what the Meccans decided to do is they decided to employ border patrol. And now they were keeping an, uh, an eye on the Muslims and an eye on the borders of Mecca, making sure none of these you know, um, heretics were able to slip out of Mecca. That we got to keep these people here because we got we to gotta beat this nonsense out of them. So now the Muslims realized that they would have to leave Mecca quietly, secretly, a couple of people at a time. A few people at a time. And they began to slip out in small, small groups like this. Until it is said that a total of almost a hundred people, the narrations tell us that there were about 83 men and about 16 women. So just the, close to about, and if you factor in the four or five people that were still there in Abyssinia, so now well over a hundred people basically had left Mecca, Muslims had left Mecca and gone and settled in Abyssinia. By this time, now when the Quraysh kind of took a look around Mecca and realized the majority of the Muslims were gone. There was literally a dozen or so, couple of dozen Muslims remaining. And these were most of the high profile people, like the Prophet ﷺ, like Abu Bakr anhu, and so on and so forth. That most of the, uh, only a dozen or so Muslims remain, and those are also the high profile people that we really can't touch anyways. So now, what do we do? Most of them have gotten away. So one of the things I didn't comment about was this was part of the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ. You have to understand the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. And we'll talk about the wisdom in regards to this migration to Abyssinia at many different levels. We'll talk about this in just a little bit some more. But at least on the, at the outset, you have to understand the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. We, a lot of times, you know, there, there are always different schools of thought in regards to this. But we have to understand one thing. A lot of times, what we feel is, especially we live in the age of social media, we live in the age of entertainment and marketing and advertisement and media and social media, hype, high profile, Loud noises is a really popular strategy. It doesn't matter how small you are. It doesn't matter how much of a beginning stage you are in. It doesn't matter what a minority you may be. How you might be a pilot program or a pilot project or, or a pilot product or whatever the case may be. What is a very popular strategy these days is make a lot of noise. Make a lot of noise, high profile. High impact, high energy, lots of noise. That's the way to go. And unfortunately, that affects us a lot of times as religious and social entities, as communities, as organizations, as institutions. We end up succumbing to the same exact strategy when we don't understand that might be a useful strategy for... You know, uh, for, for commercialization, that might be a useful strategy for marketing or retailing or selling or whatever the case may be. For a monetarily, financially driven project or product, that might be a great strategy. But that's not always the greatest strategy philosophically, spiritually, religiously, or even for a community. It's not always the greatest strategy. And we, what we end up realizing or understanding and these experiences have been had by a lot of people, we end up sometimes causing more harm than we do good. We are oftentimes become the victim of our own strategies a lot of times because of this. When we look at the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims in Mecca are a minority. And they are upon the truth. See, that's the other thing. Oh, if you're, if you're on the truth, then what's the problem? Be loud and be proud. 
Because you have the truth. Well, uh, well, well didn't the Prophet ﷺ have the truth? Didn't the Muslims in Mecca have truth? Of course they did. But there are a lot of other factors to take into consideration. You have to understand that especially as a minority, as a fledgling community, these hundred people you, that, that the Prophet ﷺ had, these are the foundation. These are the founders of the community. This is the origins of this community, the Ummah. We even look at the time of the Battle of Badr, what, what was the dua that the Prophet ﷺ made? Oh Allah, if you allow these people to perish, then you will not be worshipped on the earth. This is it, Ya Allah. These 300 people that go out here and stand in the battlefield tomorrow morning, this is it, this is the Ummah. So understanding that you might be small, and so it makes a lot of sense, you make a lot of noise. That's what any new shoe company would do, they make a lot of noise. You try to go onto Facebook and try to get 500,000 people to like your page. But we have to understand, we're not trying to sell shoes over here. We're trying to build a community. We're trying to, you know, found a community. Built the foundations of the ummah. And so the Prophet ﷺ understood that. And he realized that making a lot of noise and being high profile and marching my people, a hundred or so of them, in a major city in Arabia, marching them out into the streets to be massacred, to be slaughtered. Why? Because we stand for the truth. It's a very unintelligent thing to do. And it is a cruel thing to do. Because what you do is you sacrifice these people, you throw them to the wolves, you feed them. You literally serve them up on a silver platter and you feed them to the mob. And on top of that, what you do is you ruin the opportunity of the maybe thousands, tens of thousands that are out there who would be open, who might be amicable, who might be open to the message. You, you sabotage their opportunity to be able to interact with the message slowly, gradually, and slowly continue to come to the faith and come to Iman and come to Islam. So this is a very unintelligent thing to do. So we see that the Prophet ﷺ realizes what is most pertinent and important right now is the survival of this minority, is the continued spiritual development of these people, building the spiritual fortitude that for the day, that really when these people do have to actually stand out there on the front lines and deal with some adversity and hardship, that they're ready to deal with it. They're ready to deal with it. The development of the iman of the people, the solidification of the faith and the belief of these people was the first concern of the Prophet ﷺ. You know, there's a very interesting um, narration I found. This is mentioned in some of the books about the lives of the Sahaba anhum. I forget exactly what battle it's in regards to, but it's, it's in regards to some of the battles that were taking place on the um, you know, outer limits of the Muslim region at that time. When the Muslims were warring, they were, they were having some of the battles with the Persians. That the ranks of the Muslims at that time, this during the Khilaf of Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, the ranks of the Muslims of that time were very interesting. Because they were very diverse, they were mixed. There were many Sahaba, but there were also many Tabi'un. These are people who had accepted Islam later and who had come into contact with Sahaba. So even for us, Tabi'un are people of, of a very high caliber. But obviously, comparatively to the Sahaba, these people were newer, younger, less experienced, less knowledgeable, less refined in terms of their Iman. 
So when the narration says that when they were standing out there at the front of the front lines of the battle, on the battlefield, that it was the time, early part of the day, it was like 10, 11 a.m. when the sun starts to reach its peak and the sun is bearing down. And the Muslims were standing there in their lines, how the Muslims many times were, some of them ill-equipped, some of them not you know, fully armored or covered with armor and things like that out there in whatever condition that they had. And they looked across the battlefield and they saw these soldiers, especially in the front lines, who were completely armed from head to toe. Completely armored and shielded. And, and when you have armor and shields and swords out there and the sun is up high, glaring down, it shines literally off the armor and the swords and the shield. So this one, this one Muslim who must have been a tabi'i, not a sahabi, he looks over there and he says, لا أرى إلا حديداً He says, I don't see anything but steel. I look over and all I see is steel. I don't even see any human beings. It's just like, it's just like an army made out of like steel. That's all I see. And he was standing next to a sahabi. So he just kind of says that out loud. You know when you're in one of those moments and you look and you're like, oh snap. So he just kind of said that out loud. And he was standing Next to a Sahabi radiallahu anhu. And the Sahabi radiallahu anhu looks over at him and he goes, لَعَلَّكَ جَدِيدُ الْعَهْدِ بِالْإِسْلَامِ لَعَلَّكَ جَدِيدُ الْعَهْدِ بِالْإِسْلَامِ He goes, you sound like you recently accepted Islam. You don't sound like you have too much experience. Which is a very interesting remark to make. I mean, instead of acknowledging, he goes, yeah, they are pretty, they're armed to the teeth. Or instead of even motivating him, saying like, oh, don't worry about it. He just, the instant observation was, he goes, you seem kind of new to this. He goes, we've, we've been through this, plus even worse than this before. We stood by the side of the Prophet ﷺ in the battle of Badr. We were standing, by, standing in front of the Prophet ﷺ on the battle of Uhud, when we had been sandwiched. We stood by the side of the Prophet ﷺ when we dug trenches around Medina, and tied stones to our stomachs. We were standing by the side of the Prophet ﷺ when thousands of Muslims fled the battlefield in the battle of Hunayn and a few hundred remained to basically achieve victory for the Muslims. We sat behind the Prophet ﷺ and made istighfar on the day we conquered Mecca. We were there. So you sound like you're kind of new to this situation, but it's okay. Let me explain to you how this works, youngin. And so it shows you the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ. He wasn't concerned about making noise. He wasn't concerned about you know, some public display of whatever. The Prophet ﷺ understood this, these are very difficult circumstances, very trying situations. Right now, the preservation and the continued spiritual development of these believers is more important and more pertinent. So he himself takes 90% of his own community, his congregation, and exports them. He exports them outside of, out, out of Mecca, and sends them to a nice, safe, secure place, tells them to live there in anonymity, and continue to pray and read the Qur'an, and develop yourself spiritually, so that you are strong enough for the day that I actually need you to stand by my side. I'm, there's a, a day is going to come where I'm going to call on you. And I'm going to need you on that day. So this is a very interesting strategy by the Prophet ﷺ. Also realizing the Prophet ﷺ had a very interesting philosophy that he employed throughout his lifetime. And that was to protect yourself from the fitna of evil people. مِنَ الْجِنَّةِ nas, Like Surah, Surah Al-Nas talks about, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ 
ملك الناس إله الناس من شر الوسواس الخناس الذي يوسوس في صدور الناس من الجنة والناس شياطين الإنس والجن the Quran talks about it. Look, there are evil entities that are out there. There's a certain amount of evil that lives within us. There's the evil of the shayateen, the jinn, shaitan. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan rajim Min hamazat shayateen wa min a'udhu bika rabbi yahduruni. Right, so there's the evil of the shaitan that we also take refuge with Allah from. But then there is also an evil that Allah has created and placed within people that oftentimes also becomes a test and a trial and a fitna for us. And it's very important, part of intelligence, part of the prophetic wisdom and the prophetic blueprint is to also protect yourself from the evil of people. And the Prophet ﷺ constantly employed this strategy and this philosophy. There's a famous narration about the day, the, in, this is Medina, the Medinan era. So this is an incident from the later Medinan period, where now the Muslims and Islam and Medina and the Prophet ﷺ are well established. He's, he's got nothing to worry about one because of one person. But this one person is approaching, the Prophet ﷺ sees, his, sees him coming from a distance. His wife Aisha anha is sitting with him. So they're kind of sitting at the entrance of the, the, the quarters, the home, and he's just kind of sitting there, just kind of enjoying the day with his wife. And he sees this man approaching and he tells his wife, because you have to be protective of your family, he tells his wife, Ummul Mu'minina Aisha radiallahu anha, go inside. Udkhuli. Go inside. Because he says that, فَإِنَّهُ أَشَرُّ قَوْمِهِ Because that is the worst man of his people. He's a known troublemaker. That's a problem. That's trouble walking towards us right now. So I need you to go inside. So you gotta got look out for your own people, you gotta look out for your family. So Aisha radiallahu anha, ever the, 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 the observant, you know, uh, alert student, she goes inside the curtain, but she sits right behind the curtain so she can listen and hear and learn. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with her, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward her and bless her, if it was not for her constant observation of the Prophet ﷺ, we wouldn't even know this instruction, we wouldn't even know this prophetic wisdom and guidance. So she's sitting on the inside, she relates this incident. She's sitting and listening, and she says when the man came, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, welcomed him, asked him to have a seat, asked him, you know, who he, you know, how he was doing, how are things, how was your trip, how was your journey, and he's good, good, good. And he kind of says, you know, I just wanted to come by and see how things were going, kind of take a look around Medina and see how you were doing and how everything's going. The Prophet says, you know, everything's good, alhamdulillah, no complaints, everything's good. Basically, you know how we, just a very basic conversation, almost what we call exchanging pleasantries or formalities. Nothing too in-depth, nothing too detailed, just exchanging pleasantries and formalities. He exchanged a few pleasantries and formalities with him, and after that, the Prophet ﷺ basically just excused himself, and he goes, alright, thank you very much for coming by, um, I have to go take care of a few things, but I appreciate you swinging by. Have a nice trip back home. And just kind of moved on. Aisha radiallahu anha now, of course being the student, asks the Prophet ﷺ, what was that? What was that? You specifically told me to go inside because you said he's a troublemaker, he's problematic. And then after that, you basically just exchange you know, pleasantries with him and then just kind of very mundane basic conversation and then you just kind of excuse yourself and tell him to go on his way. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I was protecting me and my people from his evil and his harm. I didn't confront him. 
I didn't call him out. I didn't aggravate him. I didn't poke the bear. Because there's no khayr in poking a bear. You poke a bear and you get eaten. That's what happens. It's very common sense. You see a big scary dog sitting there? You don't, you don't throw a rock at it. Alright? Because he'll come after you. What you do is you pretend like you don't see the dog, you don't make eye contact and you just keep walking. That's what you do, that's intelligence. And the Prophet ﷺ taught us this intelligence. And what the Prophet ﷺ did was he realized Makkah was aggravated. You know, just like if you have like an irritation, what's the worst thing you can do if you have like a wound or some type of skin irritation? What's the worst thing you can do? Mess with it. That's the first thing they tell you to do. Don't touch it. Don't poke at it. Don't scratch it. Don't peel it. Don't lick it. Don't sniff it. Leave it alone. Leave it be. Just don't touch. That's the best thing you can do. The Prophet ﷺ realized that Makkah was like a, was, was irritated. It was agitated. It was on fire. And the more of them that there were, the more visible they were becoming, the more prominent they were becoming, it was agitating, it was basically poking at that rash. It was poking at that rash, it was poking that wound. And that was not going to lead to anything good or productive. So the Prophet ﷺ, very interestingly, along with looking out for his own people, by removing the vast over 90% of the Muslims, by removing them from Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ immediately calmed the inflammation in Mecca. The agitation, the irritation in Mecca came down a couple of notches. So that the work could continue. Because what's the objective? Is the objective to rub it in somebody's face? If our goal, in our, our, our goal in our objective is to just stand up in somebody's face, put your finger in somebody's face and say, Ha ha! What now? Come at me. What can you do? What are you going to do about it? If that is the goal and the objective, then that's fine. Then everybody should have stayed in Mecca and made a lot of noise and poked their fingers in people's faces and gone around and acted like a bunch of jerks. Then that would have been fine. But if the goal and the objective was... Guidance for all of mankind. Guidance for all of mankind. Hudan lil nas, as the Quran is. Rahmatul lil alameen, as the Prophet ﷺ was. Then there was no khayr in that. Creating an agitated situation. There was no blessing in that. And that's exactly what the Prophet ﷺ did. He brought the tension down in Mecca a couple of notches, and then continued the work. And continue to preach to people and teach people and propagate to people. And the number of Muslims, and there's a very profound wisdom in this which I'll explain. But a couple of the highest profile conversions to Islam that occurred in Mecca, not very surprisingly, not ironically, because nothing is ironic or surprising or coincidental. Everything is by the will and the decree of Allah. And everything has the wisdom, the prophetic wisdom embedded into it. That very appropriately, two of the most high profile conversions to Islam occurred immediately after the migration to Abyssinia. After 90% of the Muslims had been exported out of Mecca, and the tension had calmed back down a little bit in Mecca, you had a couple of the most high profile conversions to Islam that occurred in the Meccan era, that led to the eventual you know, prevalence of the Muslims. 
and led to a lot of confidence and strength in public you know, a standing for the Muslims and public appearance for the Muslims. And so this was part of the strategy of the Prophet ﷺ. What I wanted to dedicate today's session to, and, and this is, you know, I understand, you know, instead of just knocking through, you know, kind of plowing through one incident after another, our primary objective here in Desira sessions is to learn a lesson. And so a lot of times we'll have to also similarly learn a lesson. That a lot of times making noise or being just making noise for the sake of noise has no khair. If we have a, mission, a message or an objective or a mission, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with publicizing that and raising awareness about that. But making noise for the sake of making noise has no khair in it. Has no blessing in it. It has to be driven by the intention. Has to be driven by the mission, the objective, and the goal, and that is guidance and good for all of mankind. That's our mission, that's our objective, that's our vision, and that has to drive whatever it is that we do. We can't get caught up in the commercialization that we see around us because there's no good, there's no khayr in that, and that's something that we have to learn a lesson from from this study of the seerah. So the 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 thing that I wanted to talk about primarily today is. Once the Makkans, they looked around Mecca and they saw the Quraysh looked, the leadership of Quraysh looked around Mecca and they realized 90% of these, these troublemakers are gone. Where'd they all go? Well, apparently through their intelligence and their inside sources, they find out, well, they've all gone and set up camp in Abyssinia, in Eastern Africa, in Habasha, in Ethiopia. So they said, well, we, we can't have that. We can't have them doing that. We can't let these people get off like that. We can't let them just get away and be free. And then they're going to set up there and God knows they're going to build some type of army, thousands of strong over there. And they're going to march back to Mecca and then come back at us. We, we can't be dealing with this. We got to go after them. Well, how are we going to do that? You realize we're not in charge over there. They have a kingdom. They have a king. They have a government. They have a monarchy. They have their own situation there. Well, it's okay. We just gotta play our play this right. We gotta play our hand properly. So what are we gonna do? So they recruited a couple of people for this. The first person they recruited was Amr ibn As, radiAllahu anhu. I say radiAllahu anhu because later on he would accept Islam and become a great Sahabi of the Prophet sallallahu Eventually, be the person who brought Islam to Misr, to Egypt. He's called Fatih Misr. So Amr, Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu was the first person who was not Muslim at this time. So Amr bin al-As was the first person who was recruited. Why was he recruited? Amr bin al-As was one of the most well-traveled of the Quraysh, of the Meccans. It is said about him that he had literally stood in the court of all the major kings of the world at that time. So he had been to Rome, he had been to Persia, he had been to Africa, he had been to Egypt. The Maqoqas, the, the king of Misr, he had stood in the court of all of these kings. And so he was a well-traveled, very cultured, very sophisticated, knowledgeable person, politically savvy. So they, they, they said, we need to recruit him, and they recruited him. The second person they recruited was Umara, who was the son of Walid bin Mughira. So Walid bin Mughira, one of the key opponents to the message of the Prophet ﷺ, very arrogant against the Prophet ﷺ. His son Umara was the second person who was recruited. Why was he recruited? He was also said to be very intelligent, very likable. He kind of had like, he would basically be somebody you would hire to be like a public spokesperson. It said he was very young, very handsome, very likable, very well-spoken. A little arrogant 
At the same time, obviously, he was the son of a very powerful man, came from a very powerful family, good, dashing, young-looking guy, very well-spoken. So he was a lot of times put out there as the public spokesperson, the pretty face of Quraysh. And so he was kind of like a public personality. So he was kind of put out there a lot. So they said, okay, Amr bin al-As is the brains of the operation, and he's going to be the pretty face. So that's a good little tag team that we're going to create here. And let's send these two guys out. Okay, next thing we're going to do. Number two, we got the right team together. The second thing the Quraysh said is we need to collect a lot of funds. And basically everybody wealthy, all the leaders of Quraysh pitched together a lot of money. And they bought the most expensive gifts that they could find. And it said that the king of Abyssinia, who, who we'll probably talk about in a lot of detail in next week's session, because there's a lot of very interesting things about this individual. He's a very key, instrumental, interesting individual from the life, from the seat of the Prophet ﷺ. But his name is basically mentioned as being... Um, let me actually look it up so that I'm not just... Yes, his name is uh, mentioned to be Ashama, or some narrations actually mention his name to be Mushima, um, which basically in their language, what that translated to is, in their own language that translated to um, a very pious man, Rajulun Salihun. So Ashama or Mushima, there are two different narrations or, or it's possible that he was known by two different names. And in their own particular language, this translated to very pious man, righteous man, good man. And that's what his name was. But he was known by the title of Najashi. An Najashi. Which in you know, English books will oftentimes refer to as uh, Nigus. Nigus is the probable, prob, uh, the, the, the most appropriate pronunciation of it, it's the proper pronunciation of it, and that was Nigus. Spelled N-E-G-U-S, Nigus An-Najashi. In Arabic or even in that African dialect, it was called An-Najashi, Najashi. That was the title of the king, like we call president or emperor. Um, that was the title of the king, but his name was Ashama or Mushima. And we'll talk a lot about him in, the ne in next week's session. But they basically... They put to, and it's rumored about him. It was it was rumored about him at that time that he was very very fond of camel skins, because camels were something that were not very native to that region or to that area, and especially Arabian camels were were um, of a specific breed and kind. That the skins of Arabian camels were something that he was very fond of. And he used to like to use as a blanket or as a cloak and a robe or a shawl. He was very fond of, you know, camel hide. And so what they did was they found the biggest, you know, nicest, largest red camels that they could find. And they slaughtered these camels and they cut these camels and skinned them. And then, you know, did the treatment for the skins, which is called tanning. They tanned these hides and they basically packaged them nicely together and sent these as gifts along with a lot of other gifts, they sent them in the hands of Amr bin al-As and Umara to basically take to An-Najashi, present to him. And something else they did, the third part of their strategy was, before you approach the king, you want, we want you to go to all the key ministers. Alright, Amr, this is where you come in handy. You got a lot of you know, inside connections. 
into all these different courts. I want you to find out which ministers actually have the ear of the king. And we want you to approach those ministers first with this money and these gifts. And we want you to win them over. And then we want you, that, we want you to basically petition those ministers to give you an audience with the king. And put in a good word for you with the king. Because the king will listen to his ministers. Especially the ones that he relies and trusts. So that's how we want you to go about this. So now they set out onto this journey, this trip, all these gifts, all these goods, this whole strategy, this everything, and they set out. Something very interesting happened along the way. It's not a very pleasant story. It's kind of inappropriate, but it goes to tell you a little bit about the caliber or the character of at least one of these individuals. The other one, Amr radiallahu anhu, would eventually become Muslim. But this other man, it's said about him that one of the incidents that I've mentioned before is that the Prophet was praying. And while the Prophet was praying in the Haram, in the Kaaba, when he went into sujood, some individuals, they basically thought it was really funny for laughs, for a few kicks. And this was basically, after this incident was, was when Abu Talib gathered Banu Hashim together and said, Hey guys, come on, we gotta get behind him. You might not like him, you might not agree with him, but he's one of us. For the sake of the family's honor and dignity, we gotta get behind him. What, what a few troublemakers decided to do when the Prophet ﷺ went into sujood at the haram, they basically took the intestines of a camel and they went and they dumped it onto the back of the Prophet ﷺ. And it was so heavy that the Prophet ﷺ basically fell under the pressure of it and he got pinned down. It was the whole stomach and all the intestines of a camel and they dumped it onto him and he got pinned down underneath it. And then finally it said that either some of the family members of the Prophet ﷺ or Abu Bakr anhu went and removed it from the back of the Prophet ﷺ. And when he got up, he was very upset and he was very angry. Because then they were all sitting around laughing and pointing and acting like children. Acting very childish and immature. That the Prophet ﷺ got upset and he went over and he warned a few of them. And it said that a few of them that he warned, there were about seven people there who were part of this little, you know, uh, very inappropriate act. Um, he went over to them and he warned them that I warn you of the punishment of Allah. You keep up, look, you can disagree if you want to disagree, but you keep up this mockery and this childish behavior, and Allah's wrath and punishment will come after you. And Umar, the son of Walid bin Mughira, was one of these people. And it tells you a lot about the character of this man, that he was just a very ill-mannered human being. He was just a wretched man. That on this journey, it said that Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu's wife was also with him. They, you know, it was part of it. The, Amr bin al-As was a leader of his people. Umar was the son of Walid bin Mughira. So they had a few servants and things like that. And so the wife of Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu was with him on this journey. And along the way on the journey, while they were on the boat and on the trip, and as I've said, you know, I've kind of uh, offered this disclaimer, it's a little bit inappropriate, but Umar being just a very terrible human, being a wretched man, he basically goes to Amr and he goes that, you know, I find your wife attractive. Why don't, would you mind if I um, behaved inappropriately with your wife? Um, and of course, Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu, being a very respectable man, as 
you know, evidenced by the fact that he would accept Islam later on and be a leader of not just his people, but the Muslims later on. He of course said, no, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Right? Ala tastahi? And Amr bin al-As himself narrates this incident later on. He tells him, he goes, what's wrong with you? Didn't your mother love you when you were a child? What kind of, what kind of a terrible thing is that to say somebody? And it said that Amr bin al-As was kind of like a smaller you know, man in stature. He, he wasn't very tall, he was a little bit shorter, very small, very thin, very light. He was a smaller statured man. And Umara, again being that kind of that pretty face, he was like a tall, six foot tall guy, very well built, handsome, young, strong guy. So it said that when nobody else was looking, one evening on the boat after Umar basically, Umar radiallahu anhu, embarrassed him and reprimanded him, told him to take a hike, wretched human being. That when nobody else was looking and Amr radiallahu anhu was just kind of sitting there and was a little off guard, he came and grabbed Amr bin al-As and threw him off the boat. He threw him off the boat into the water. Now Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu, the one thing that Umara didn't know, because typically people in Mecca and Quraysh weren't very, you know, weren't very good at swimming. Just because they lived in the middle of the desert, they really didn't need to know how to swim. But Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu was very well traveled. So he was like something of an expert swimmer. Like he could just swim laps. And Umara didn't know that. So he throws him into the water. They're moving on a small, like very slow, small ship through the water. He throws him off the boat. Amr ibn Naas goes, great, some exercise. And he just swims right back up to the boat and gets back up on the boat. And just kind of looks at him like, you didn't factor that in, did you, smart guy? That's why you're the pretty face and I'm the brains. That's right, you might be pretty, but you're an idiot, right? You didn't know that I know how to swim, did you? And, and, and he actually says to Amr radiallahu anhu, he goes, oh, I'm sorry, if I, knew that, if I knew that you knew how to swim, I wouldn't have thrown you into the water. He tells him too, he goes, I'm sorry. That's his apology, by the way. I'm sorry, I didn't know that you knew how to swim. Otherwise, I wouldn't have thrown you into the water. And Amr bin al-As basically gets back up on the boat and he goes, now you go sit in your corner before I have something else done to you, right? And so this was the, the level of this man and, and the, the caliber of this man. And, and even though this is jumping forward in the story a little bit, but basically when they actually go, and this is something we'll talk about more next week since the session's gone a little long already, um, but later on once they actually arrive there in Ethiopia and Abyssinia and the whole incident occurs as we'll talk about next week and they're basically you know headed back to Mecca now dejected and rejected that Umara messes around there in Abyssinia as well and he tries to kind of make some trouble he tries to kind of talk to some of uh, I'll talk more about this next week but the King Najashi at that time actually had an opposition party. There was a rebel faction within Habisha, within Abyssinia, which was trying to overthrow this king. And he tries to kind of go and, you know, play nice and kind of get in cahoots with the opposition to the king. The king finds out, the king actually even makes dua against him as well. Remember the Prophet ﷺ made dua against him in Mecca. The king also makes dua against him as well. And it's basically said that while they're in Abyssinia, Umara ended up becoming insane. 
while he's there in Abyssinia, he basically becomes insane, runs away. Nobody can find him, nobody can locate him. Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu basically has to go back to Mecca without him because nobody can find him. Later on, they discover him, they find him living out in the wilderness. Literally living out in the jungle, living out in the wilderness like a wild animal. He's completely gone insane, he's completely lost his mind. Like he needs to be institutionalized, that's, that's the condition that he's in. And it even mentions in narrations much, much later on that during the Khilafah of Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu, when Muslims actually go in large numbers to Abyssinia, to East Africa, to Habasha, they actually discover him there. They find him. And when they find him, they basically grab him, they say, isn't this Umar, the son of Walid bin Mughira? Like, oh my God, everybody thought he was dead. Look at him, he's like a wild animal. So they find him there in this condition and they actually grab him and he's crazy and wild. So they actually have to restrain him and he starts to scream to the people. He says, let me go, let me go, let me go, let me go. If you don't let me go, I'll die, I'll die, I'll die. And they literally say by evening time he had died. By evening time he had died. So he had developed some type of, along with the instability and insanity, he had apparently developed some type of social phobia where he couldn't even be around people anymore. And when some people tried to kind of restrain him and grab him and nurse him back to health for his own sake, just by being around people, he became so paranoid and so emotionally unstable that he just died. He literally just died. And so that's kind of how that situation played out. But getting back to the incident in the story, Amr bin al-As radiallahu anhu and this man Umar, the son of Walid bin Mughira, they arrive now in Abyssinia. They make their way to the court of the king. They first approach some of the key ministers because of Amr bin al-As has done his kind of homework. He's got some intelligence. He knows who he needs to talk to. They approach some of the key ministers. They give them some gifts and butter them up and talk to them really nicely and say, listen, we got a little bit of a situation on our hands. These are some slaves and runaway slaves and rebels and all these crazy people. They've kind of come here. Look, these, you, you might not see a problem with these people right now, but I'm telling you, they're going to become a problem for you later on. Plus, you know, they fattened up some of the ministers with some gifts and things like that as well. So now they feel like they got a little bit of an in with the king. And now they basically confirmed an audience with the king. And a reservation and an appointment has been made. And the next day they're supposed to go and be presented before the king. And that's basically what we'll stop for this week inshallah. In next week's session we'll talk about their audience with the king. And then the Muslims are called into the court of the king. And how they basically present themselves before the king as well. And we'll continue on from there. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah will be Alhamdulillah, Subhanakallah, Alhamdulillah, Nashhadu Allah ilaha illa Anta, Nasakhfiru Kuna Tabuilek.